Welcome everyone to another episode of Poem Peeps and our second episode in our new series of our Poem Peeps Fellows Case Files. I'm so excited to highlight another amazing case by a current fellow in training and to hear about another amazing fellowship program. How about you, Firth? Hey, Christina. Yeah, definitely pumped. Uh, you know, for a reminder for everybody, this series is really for two purposes. One is we just think there are amazing fellows around the country and the world who are hearing cases and they work really hard on these great case presentations. I think they're really memorable when you hear about them in the hospital and, and we want to sort of amplify their work and spread it a little further. And the second is just to build a network of great training programs and educators that can come on Poem Peeps and share some wisdom with us, which is why each episode will, the fellow will also be accompanied by the fellowship program director. Uh, and we'll be talking to two people today. Absolutely, Firth. And on that note, if you're a pulmonary critical care fellow and have a great case you'd like to discuss, just send us a message on Twitter or email us and we'd love to have you join the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and today we're thrilled to be joined by members of the Harvard Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program at Mass General Hospital and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Before we introduce them, just for a reminder, this podcast is not for direct medical advice. The case is HIPAA compliant and some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. And the viewpoints are our own and don't reflect the opinions or practices of our respective employers. Great. And super excited to start with our introductions today. Our fellow um, presenter today is Dr. Brian Rosenberg. Brian is a third-year fellow at the Harvard MGHBI program. He completed his undergraduate degree at Harvard and received his MD from Yale, where he also got a PhD in cell biology. So I'm sure you were really busy um, during that time, Brian, and a lot to share with us. Um, Brian then finished um, and went on to do his internal medicine residency at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. And we're so excited to have you um, join us today. Welcome to Poem Peeps, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Next, we have Asha Anandaya. Asha is an assistant professor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School and is the program director of the combined MGHBI Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship. She's also the, the director of the Pulmonary Consult Service at BIDMC, was a Rabkin Fellow in Medical Education, and has received multiple leadership and teaching awards. It's great to have you on the show today, Asha. Thank you so much, Dave and Monty, for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, well, I definitely can't wait to dive in. So, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the case you have for us today? All right. So this is a case of a 30-year-old uh, gentleman who was at his baseline uh, state of health until two months prior to admission when he presented to an emergency department with bilateral lower extremity edema and erythema. Basic lab workup during that ED visit revealed leukocytosis, uh, creatinine of 1.47, and an NTBNP of uh, 6,600. Admission was recommended, but unfortunately, he left uh, against medical advice and uh, was given a prescription for oral Bactrim and uh, Keflex to go home with. He now presents uh, to uh, the hospital with worsened leg swelling, subjective fevers and chills, and progressive shortness of breath to the point that his mother says that he can now barely breathe. The shortness of breath is sometimes accompanied by a sense of lightheadedness. And over the past week, he has also been intermittently coughing white and sometimes pink-tinged sputum and reports that his urine is occasionally reddish in color. He also uh, told us that uh, he experienced some nausea and vomiting over the past few days. Well, Brian, that definitely sounds like there's a lot going on um, with him. 
And before we dive in a little bit further, I was wondering if you could round out the rest of the history for context, um, anything else that you'd want listeners to know at this time. Sure. He uh, also had a history of substance use disorder, uh, was actively using cocaine, uh, IV opioids, uh, cigarettes, and marijuana. He had a history of untreated hepatitis C infection and a remote history of uh, craniotomy that was done for a traumatic brain injury that uh, he didn't have any sequelae from. No uh, allergies of note, um, and the only medication that he was taking was Adderall. He denied any uh, significant uh, family history. Yeah, this is an interesting presentation. You know, anytime I meet a new patient, my my personal diagnostic approach is just try to frame them with a problem representation because I, I think that gives me a way to start diving into either diagnostic schemas or thinking about their pathophysiology. And this is a tough one for that because there's so much going on. So, you know, I'd summarize him, I guess, in a problem representation as a young man with active polysubstance and IV drug use, who's presenting with dyspnea, productive cough, lower extremity edema, fevers, and hematuria two months after a presentation with AKI and maybe some cardiac strain on labs. You know, the reason I say this is tough is because like that's a mouthful and this isn't just like one schema that I'm thinking of. It's not just lower extremity edema and dyspnea, which kind of goes me down one pathway. It's not just fevers and productive cough, which is another pathway, but it's trying to kind of like look for the overlaps of that. So, you know, at this point, the differential is so broad that I probably would just dive into examining him to start narrowing it down. Totally agree, Firth, and definitely a very broad differential that we're probably all thinking of right now, as you mentioned. And I'm really honing in on the fever in your problem representation, leading me towards sort of an inflammatory versus an infectious process at this time. You know, he does have tons of risk factors too, which Brian mentioned, including his IV drug use, which could predispose him to soft tissue infections, bacteremia, as well as endocarditis, or even, you know, severe syndromes such as toxic shock syndrome. Another thing that's important to note is that his hepatitis C would be a risk factor for vasculitides. And on that note, I wonder about his prior creatinine elevation and if that was just an AKI or is that now a progressive trend um, now that we see hematuria as well. And I wonder if he could be having an um, evolving nephretic syndrome or something similar such as that. Brian, I was wondering if you could let us know about any pertinent exam findings at this time. Absolutely. So at the time of of the exam, his temperature was 37.2, his heart rate 111, his blood pressure was 85 over 54 uh, with a respiratory rate of 16 and a saturation of 98% on room air. And uh, the notable exam findings uh, were that he was uh, tachycardic. Um, he was noted to have a three out of six systolic murmur, most prominent at the left lower sternal border. His lungs were clear to auscultation uh, bilaterally, and he did have two plus pitting edema with uh, and, and a, a very notable skin uh, skin exam. He had scattered lesions on uh, his both his uh, bilateral upper extremity and uh, lower extremities. And I'll, I'll try to describe them as best as I can, but hopefully we can get some pictures uh, pictures up as well. The, the lesions were red, um, some almost purpuric, some uh, more petechial, and most of them were, uh, were palpable uh, when, you, when you ran your uh, fingers over them. 
Yeah, so I think definitely some significant findings, Brian, and I think things, you know, that may kind of be fitting into some of our, you know, infectious versus inflammatory differentials, you know, and I wanted to go a little bit further and how were you tying in, you know, his hemodynamics as well as the physical exam findings, Brian, and kind of what were you thinking of um, as, you know, expanding on the differential or any other kind of further thoughts that you had um, at this time for him? Certainly um, some things on exam and and in his vital signs that that are of concern in in terms of his uh, more immediate course. The first thing that I point out is that his heart rate is higher than his systolic blood pressure. So his his, um, shock index is greater than one and significantly greater than one. So, you know, we know that he probably is in shock at this time and and certainly has a high risk of further decompensation. To get to the other exam findings, he had no documented history of a, a heart murmur beforehand. So, you know, in someone this, this sick, um, thinking about things like a, a new endocardial lesion, like endocarditis or uh, or a valvular lesion that's uh, that's acute and causing his um, his decompensation was in the forefront of our of our minds. Um, evidence of systemic congestion, the, the pitting edema that he had, again in conjunction with the, the clear lungs, certainly raises concern that there's a there might be a right sided cardiac uh, process involved. Although you know at this point in time you'd have to consider other causes of uh, edema that aren't cardiac in origin uh, as well. You mentioned something that I'm just going to point out because I think it's a great point. You know, the shock index, heart rate over systolic blood pressure. And for our listeners who don't know, this is an index that was first sort of manifested in the trauma literature, looking for sort of a cold hemorrhage and uh, values greater than 0.9 had a high predictive mortality. And then since then has been sort of studied and validated in conjunction with infectious signs for sepsis mortality. And it's a really nice, just very simple bedside measure to look at. So I'm glad you pointed that out. I'm going to want to go to you next, Asha. You know, I have a question about these skin findings, as Brian is you know, alluding to. They're important. I think they're really important in any ICU patient, especially someone who's really sick. That being said, I'm really bad at the skin exam. I'm even worse at describing my skin exam. And so I'm just kind of wondering your approach to skin lesions or new skin findings uh, in a critically ill patient in the ICU. Yeah, Dave, I totally agree. I don't consider myself to be a very good dermatologist. Um, so I actually, I would say I take a pretty simplistic approach, um, acknowledging that um, in my approach to patients that come in critically ill with skin findings and try and just put them in one of maybe three buckets. So thinking about sort of one bucket being, you know, probably unrelated to critical illness. So if it's something that looks chronic, something that's easily identifiable, even to those non-dermatologists, um, of, you know, a chronic condition or, or something that just doesn't line up in terms of timeline, you know, isn't associated temporally with a critical illness, if you know, you know, if you know that from the history. And that's one bucket. I think the other bucket that you definitely want to sort of the don't miss bucket in the acute setting is sort of th- considering the possibility if there's a prominent skin finding that it could be sort of driving the critical illness in the primary process. That's relatively uncommon, all things considered, but certainly infection, you know, most commonly a skin and soft tissue infection, for example, and making sure to do a thorough exam, you know, highlight or draw lines around any areas of concern and that sort of thing. The other sort of bucket in this category would be the sort of 
Stevens Johnson's toxic epidermal necrolysis spectrum, you know, of adverse drug reactions typically, although sometimes from infection, that can actually sort of be the primary diagnosis presenting with the skin findings. Um, typically, we think about, you know, examining the mucous membranes if there's a significant rash as a way to um, sort of preliminarily assess for that possibility. So there are a couple of things in that category. And then the last bucket, which you know, I think this patient probably falls into more so is, you know, are there skin findings that are a clue to an underlying systemic disorder. And that's where, you know, I think, you know, certainly, you know, certain infections, meningococcemia or certain staph infections, and as well as other inflammatory disorders, um, you know, potentially vasculitis with palpable purpura, you mentioned in this case, or some of the ones that come to mind. But that's where I would say I would have a low threshold to actually consult derm and get them involved and not rely necessarily on my ability to identify those in any specific fashion, but rather to kind of um, reach out to the experts early, understanding that there may be some important clues there. And also that, you know, more often than not, Derm's going to want to biopsy and that that's going to take some time um, before it comes back. And so getting them involved early, if you think the rash is a good clue, I think is, is a reasonable approach. There's nothing like we like more than a, a simple and bucketed approach. So that that's perfect. I love that. Brian, can you let us know about sort of the additional workup the patient had at this time? Sure. The the first pass workup uh, was notable for a significantly elevated BUN into the into the hundreds, um, a creatinine that was also significantly elevated from his baseline, hyperkalemia, uh, low serum bicarbonate. Um, his CBC was noti- notable for a leukocytosis that was PMN predominant, as well as uh, an anemia that was normocytic uh, with a slightly elevated platelet count. He had mild uh, transaminase uh, elevation and uh, mildly elevated INR. His CRP and ESR were both elevated, and his uh, troponin was elevated and um, had a rising trajectory. As was noted before, he had an elevated pro-BNP. And then uh, also of interest, his uh, urinalysis had one plus protein, uh, three plus uh, blood, no nitrates or leak esterase. And uh, on the micro um, had uh, three to five uh, white blood cells and uh, many red blood cells. Uh, the EKG is also uh, quite notable, and um, I'll try to describe it here, it was sinus rhythm, but he did have a borderline right axis deviation, a dominant R wave in B1, T wave inversions, and subtle ST depressions in the anterior leads, and an incomplete right bundle branch block uh, pattern. A uh, chest x-ray was also obtained um, that was notable for an enlarged cardiac silhouette and uh, mediastinum and also some middle to upper lobe infiltrates, uh, particularly on the, on the right, and some air bronchograms and uh, some infiltrates on the, on the left. There was no uh, evidence of pleural effusions um, or uh, pneumothorax on that. Thanks so much, Brian. That certainly does add a lot of information, you know, to the case. And while not yet consistent with one um, unifying kind of diagnosis or picture for me right now, um, we are definitely getting a lot of hints that are kind of pointing us in certain directions. And I think the three big categories of findings that you pointed out for us on the labs include the following. And I think the first is renal failure, as you mentioned, which for him is acute to subacute based on his prior creatinine measure. 
And uh, thank you for bringing in, you know, the UA findings in here as well, because this does suggest to me possible glomerular involvement. The next kind of set of um, our category that I'm thinking of is inflammatory infectious response, with you mentioning the leukocytosis, the normocytic anemia, rhombocytosis, and then elevated inflammatory markers. And then the third um, are signs of myocardial strain and ischemia. You mentioned, you know, there's elevated pro-BNP, and I know sometimes that's a little difficult to interpret with acute renal failure, but I think you mentioning the troponemia as well as the abnormal EKG findings um, with evidence of right heart strain and also tying in his um, chest x-ray, which is showing an enlarged cardiac silhouette. I'm definitely starting to think about cardiac ischemia, myocarditis, or even a PE. So in total, you know, I'd be looking for something to unite all three of these, and my leads are still an endocarditis or infectious picture, given the history and the significant skin lesions that you described, or an autoimmune disease or vasculitis, again, with all of this, um, including the skin lesions. Yeah, I totally agree, Monte. You know, we'll post this ECG online, but I think it's, you know, you described it very well, Brian. It's really classic for an RV strain. Now, you'd want to see if you had prior uh, EKGs that looked like that, but if he didn't, and this was brand new, and you had, you know, troponins and ProBNP and a slightly different story, like not acute renal failure, but someone came in like that and had sudden syncope, sudden chest pain syncope, that may be enough to just like start activating you know, thromboleg pathways and as you're continuing to work stuff up. So I think it's a really important to point to emphasize the right-sided strain. I definitely want some more tests to, to look into that. Uh, so, you know, thinking about a CT and an echo. And then I think this always raises an interesting question. And Asha, I'd be curious your opinion. A lot of times in this situation, you'd love to get a contrasted scan. You know, you'd love to see the pulmonary arteries, is there PE? Also, just kind of if you're thinking about inflammatory diseases, may be helpful. But we know he has a new acute kidney injury. Um, so I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer, but I'm curious how you approach these scenarios. Yeah, Dave, I agree. It's always comes up so often in the ICU and it's often kind of a tough call and something sometimes can hem and haw about. You know, I think overall, the literature around contrast-induced acute kidney injury has, I think, evolved and in, in sort of in the bigger picture outside of the ICU in this, this type of case, suggesting that maybe what we used to think was contrast-induced AKI more likely is often associated um, and rather than sort of necessarily causative. So that kind of strong association we have kind of in all patients maybe is, is less strong than we think. But I still think an area of controversy and certainly nobody has really studied this population, the evolving AKI population, where certainly they have many reasons that they could continue to have an AKI, but where we worry um, about any possible additional insults such as contrast. And I think, you know, there's definitely no one size fits all here, like with most things in the ICU and a really case specific approach. I mean, thinking about the relative risks and benefits, you know, sometimes there are cases where, you know, you can take an alternative path to identifying, you know, thromboembolic disease, for example, with diagnosing a DVT, you know, if you could do an ultrasound, it could be enough information for you in terms of therapies. Or, you know, some cases, empiric anticoagulation may be reasonable or all you have if you really can't move a patient. I think in a case like this, where the stakes are pretty high with everything you guys have discussed um, around the potential for for PE specifically, um, with respect to, you know, some of the potential even other therapies that might be invoked, I think that you kind of have to bite the bullet uh, in a case like this, and in many cases in the ICU, and and go ahead and proceed with contrast, knowing that there may be some um, some trade off there. Although, of course, never knowing for sure. 
Sure. So, so he uh, went on to get a CT scan with contrast, which was quite revealing in this case. And I'll highlight the, um, the most prominent findings here. First, and to my mind, the most unusual uh, was that there was concentric soft tissue um, surrounding the main pulmonary artery and extending into the, both the right and the left pulmonary arteries, and also surrounding the aortic root and aortic arch and the origin of the great vessels. There was indeed an acute uh, pulmonary embolism. So this, this was done with contrast, uh, but it was non-obstructive and uh, only involved uh, the medial segment of the middle lobe pulmonary artery. Really, there wasn't any other clot burden. There was also a moderate pericardial uh, effusion. There were CT findings suggestive of right heart strain as well. There were uh, ground glass opacities um, in the right upper lobe in particular. And there was sub-centimeter uh, mediastinal uh, lymphadenopathy on both sides and uh, very small pleural effusions bilaterally as well. I can also talk about the echo findings. So his uh, left ventricular ejection fraction was um, 79%. And really the entire left side of his heart were, was, was normal. The right side, however, was, was grossly abnormal. He had a dilated right ventricular cavity. Um, the entire right ventricle was diffusely um, hypokinetic. And then uh, most interestingly, the, he had a, um, a finding of flow acceleration um, across the main pulmonary artery distal to the uh, pulmonary valve with a a gradient, mean gradient of uh, 42 millimeters of mercury. His RV um, systolic pressure as estimated by, by the jet of tricuspid regurgitation was uh, 106 millimeters of mercury. And um, they also were able to note, even though it was a transthoracic um, echocardiogram, that there was narrowing of the, uh, the main pulmonary artery and what looked like thickened uh, main pulmonary artery walls. Wow, Brian, that's so like so much to take in. And thank you for describing it. You know, I'm trying to kind of start to think in my head, like create images in my head of what this looks like, because there's so many, you know, abnormalities. And we'll definitely post some CT and echo findings online for everyone to kind of follow along. And since they're pretty impressive, you know, it certainly seems like there's significant RV strain, as you mentioned, as well as the PE. But what's really striking to me um, is the soft tissue thickening and stranding around the PAs and aorta. And something, you know, I haven't seen that often and definitely not something that we are used to seeing with a diagnosis of PE. So, Brian, I'm interested to know, what did you and the team start to think about with all of this new information? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of interesting features to, to this case. Certainly, uh, multiple organ systems um, are involved. To focus on the most striking imaging findings, which I think is the, the large vessel involvement, both the pulmonary artery and uh, arteries and the aorta. So definitely an, an unusual finding on CT and definitely brings to mind uh, an inflammatory process in, in those vessels. So there are both infectious causes of, of those findings, but I think um, I think what we were more thinking uh, along the lines of is a non-infectious inflammatory cause of those findings. And uh, so the main things on the differential for, for large vessel vasculitides that, that affect both the pulmonary artery and the arteries in the aorta are Takayasu's arteritis, particularly in, in someone who's a little bit on the younger side, like our patient was. Um, in the older population, giant cell arteritis can, can definitely 
you do this. And then IgG4 disease is definitely in the differential as well. Um, and less commonly, other connective tissue disorders can, can also uh, cause these findings. The, the other thoughts that the, the team brought up is whether there, and we actually went down to radiology to discuss this, there were no, no evidence of uh, pulmonary artery aneurysms. Um, it was just soft tissue thickening uh, of the walls. But if there were an, uh, aneurysmal elements to the pulmonary artery uh, vessels, you uh, might add uh, diseases like uh, Bichette syndrome and, and Hughes-Stovin syndrome to the differential as well. Much less commonly, um, you know, uh, diseases that uh, can cause, uh, usually cause small vessel pulmonary vasculitis can have large vessel involvement. So uh, conditions such as the ANCA uh, vasculitides, as well as other medium and small vascul uh, vessel vasculitides are, are still in the differential, but um, perhaps a little bit less likely at this point. But, you know, to zoom out again, uh, this patient had evidence of both skin involvement that did really suggest uh, small vessel disease and possible renal disease. And, um, and, and so even though based on the, the pulmonary uh, imaging findings that the small vascul vessel vasculitides seemed uh, less uh, likely to explain that, I think uh, we all thought we, we needed to keep a, a fairly broad differential at this point in time, given the, the variety of the, the findings that we encountered in this patient. Yeah, I think that yeah, that's a great summary of like, you know, trying to put together a really odd finding with sort of the, in, in context of the rest of the systemic. And you mentioned some, like you could consider infections, like, uh, you know, I guess syphilis can do a large vessel vasculitis. And I think the endemic fungi can do anything if they want to in, in, a, in a compromised patient. But putting it together, it really doesn't sound like that would be a description. So I think that's a great way to sort of approach it. One thing I did want to just point out, because I, I was a pearl that I was taught long ago that I think is really important. You know, this patient, you did a, a nice job telling us how the PE is probably not the main driver. He has a flow acceleration in the PA is unrelated to the PE. It's not obstructive. But the other thing too, is there's just no way all of this RV dysfunction is brand new with an RVSP of 106, right? So, you know, RVSP can get really high in acute PE, but anything above that sort of 50 to 60 range, you know, the RV would just blow out if, uh, if it was a brand new obstruction. And so you kind of know there's something else that's been going on. Um, you know, with this, these findings and hypotension on presentation, I imagine this patient is pretty sick and, you know, stabilization is sort of a key part of what's going next. Uh, Asha, with given all the tests that Brian, uh, the differential that Brian talked about, what kind of tests would you want next for this patient so that while they're being stabilized, we can figure out what's driving all of this? Yeah, I think Brian was starting to get into that. It's such an interesting finding with these large vessel type of involvement. I think like you were both saying, sort of unexpected. And I think, you know, in thinking about some of the vasculitides, like Brian was mentioning, some of the ones that typically involve, involve large vessels don't necessarily have serologic tests, um, you know, as compared to ones we think of smaller vessel, you know, the Takayasus or giant cell. But I think, you know, certainly casting a broad net and testing uh, serologically for the things we can um, would make a lot of sense. And I think the sort of general vasculitis panel, including sort of the ANA and, and with that complement levels and the antiphospholipid panel, thinking about, I think he had a history of some IV drug use and maybe hepatitis. So thinking about cryoglobulins, the sort of ANCA, GBN, sort of thinking about the pulmonary renal, which he also has sort of concern for based on the presentation, a UA, um, if we didn't already have one. 
And then you mentioned IgG4 as a consideration, Brian, so you can send a serum IgG4 level as well. So there's just some of the things I think, you know, hopefully I caught most of them on the kind of vasculitis inflammatory panel. And then Dave, you mentioned some of the infections that are probably still in the back of your mind. So broadly, right, you have blood cultures cooking, hopefully you have fungal cultures, like you mentioned, the hepatitis panel and things like that that go along with some of potentially a reason to, to invoke some of the inflammatory causes. Um, and then a couple of those kind of rare, you know, what can involve the aorta, you mentioned syphilis, um, TB I put on there. So maybe just sort of rounding out you know, with those considerations. But I think, you know, ultimately, you're always also at the same time thinking about tissue and where can you go to get a definitive diagnosis. Um, again, particularly with these sort of unusual aspects of this case. I know with the, we often think about the kidneys as a relatively easy place to go if the kidneys are, are involved. And it, it does seem like with the presentation that the, you know, in this setting, the kidney dysfunction is probably part of the underlying process and might be a good target. Thanks so much, Asha. Yeah, I was going to ask that question, whether or not um, you would want to pursue a, a renal biopsy. Um, so that makes sense. And, you know, sometimes patients I deal with have a lot of thrombocytopenia, but this is not the case. So I think would be safe to proceed with that. Thank you for going over that for us. Um, and interested, Brian, though, I know, I mean, the patient sounds pretty sick right now. I think one that we would all be worried about. Can you tell us what's happened next with the patient's course? Yeah, so he uh, unfortunately got got much sicker uh, very quickly because of the the renal failure and severe hyperkalemia. He uh, required an emergent um, dialysis line placement and uh, became quite agitated during that. And uh, because of that, required intubation. After intubation, he became very hypotensive, uh, requiring a fairly high-dose uh, vasopressors. He was, of course, started on uh, very broad-spectrum uh, antibiotics. In the context of his instability and the pericardial effusion that he had, even though um, it was there were no clear signs of um, echocardiographic tamponade. He, um, he did undergo an emergent pericardiosynthesis and, and had uh, two liters um, removed at the time. He also had a skin biopsy uh, performed uh, fairly rapidly and, and a renal biopsy as well. Uh, all of the serologic tests that, were, uh, that Asha mentioned were sent off um, and pending because uh, of the concern for decompensated right ventricular failure received uh, INO uh, through his endotracheal tube and uh, epinephrine for uh, RV hemodynamic uh, support. Because of uh, the very uh, high concern that this was a, a fulminant inflammatory process um, on um, a gram per day of methylprednisolone empirically. Yeah, I love that you outlined sort of everything that we're doing for him. And it's sort of a real punctuated point in this case that you're doing a lot without knowing exactly what's driving it. And you're sort of treating uh, and doing management at the same time. So he's getting treatments broadly, antibiotics, he's getting steroids that you sort of pulled the trigger on. And then you're using your, just your pathophysiologic understanding to stabilize him. You know, he's intubated, fluid removal with CVVH. You're thinking about RV strain. So he's getting inhaled nitric oxide and epinephrine for RV support and, you know, just such a common scenario in critical care where you're doing all these things at once. You know, I think an important point just to point out is that, you know, he had this pericardiosynthesis you mentioned with a lot of RV uh, strain and reduced function. That's certainly a very high risk procedure, right? So uh, pericardial effusion is a, a 
scary sign in somebody who has pulmonary hypertension, RV failure. And if you sort of lose that pericardial constraint that, that is helping the RV do whatever filling it can, they can sort of collapse right away. So luckily he did not sort of have that. Asha, I want to ask you, I'm asking you a lot of questions about where, where there's probably no right answer, but we always have to do it a lot. You know, this patient, uh, we don't know exactly what's going on. We have an idea and they're started on a gram per day of methylprednisolone. So this is another common ICU situation and a pulmonary situation about starting high dose steroids in someone, but we don't know the exact driver. So what thoughts do you have about that? And, and how do you approach that empiric process? Yeah, I give I agree. There are lots of questions with no straightforward answer. So the answer is, you know, thinking through the sort of specific aspects of the case. And I think this is definitely one of those situations, sort of kind of real time, tough decision making. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, we know why we consider this. It's when we have a patient who seems to have an uncontrolled, progressive, what we think is most likely inflammatory process. Um, and we're worried about the trajectory and, and either don't have another opportunity to get diagnostics or they're going to take some time. And we don't think we have that time. I think thinking about what's in the sort of, you know, that's in the sort of plus column for empiric pulse steroids. I think in the negative column is always you know, the first three things are infection, which is typically on our differential at some point in these cases, as we discussed in this case. And I think really doing due diligence and, and making sure we've done everything we can to exclude the possibility of, of you know, giving pulse steroids to someone where there is an active infection um, that is still really seriously being considered. And I think in this case, you know, at this point, we have probably a couple of days uh, or some time in terms of culture data which we typically like to see to help us with that, you know, certainly any type of infection, albeit I think, you know, the potentially most disastrous scenarios are in the setting of fungal or mycobacterial infection being um, kind of in, under consideration. So thinking about those in particular. And then, you know, I think the other things to consider are, you know, sort of are there other diagnostics or not? Sometimes in those pulmonary situations you mentioned, there just aren't going to be any others. And so it's sort of the end of the road to make this decision. Um, but if there, if there are, if there's time. And then lastly, you know, would giving steroids first cloud your diagnostics? That's sometimes a scenario um, that you have to consider in terms of the timing of things. But all that being said, you know, I think certainly in a case like this, where the patient has, you know, severe multi-system kind of organ failure is progressing and uh, inflammatory etiology in particular, something like a vasculitis um, is sort of at the top of the differential, certainly seems like a reasonable um, thing to do. And hopefully knowing that you, you have some pending diagnostics that'll help you uh, in short order. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. Seems very reasonable in this case. And then oh, those are all the things that we always kind of think about. So Brian, smooth sailing from here after he got his steroids. How did the rest of the case go? Oh well, not not uh, not exactly. Uh, unfortunately, the patient actually did start to improve uh, for a day or so on uh, uh, a day or two on the high dose steroids, and all of the infectious studies that were sent, including bacterial, fungal cultures from uh, essentially every site that we could uh, we could culture, in including an initial bronchoscopy after he was um, intubated, were were no growth. But uh, overnight, develop a massive hemoptysis from his uh, endotracheal tube and required an emergent bronchoscopy. The hemoptysis was, was diffuse, but the worst of it was coming from that right upper lobe, uh, bronchus, which if you remember back to the CT scan, that was where the, the worst of his ground glass abnormalities were. 
And interestingly, a a serial bronchoalveolar lavage revealed progressively bloodier specimens um, that was certainly suggestive of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Uh, but the bleeding was bad enough that the uh, the entire right upper lobe needed to be packed with uh, a surgicel type material by our uh, interventional pulmonary colleagues to obtain control of the, the the bleeding. Glad that he was in in the right place and with the right experts um, needed to take care of him. And you know, luckily we know from our prior hemoptysis episode with Chris Cap and Matt Schimmel from our recent case with Tess Lichman reviewing pulmonary renal syndromes. You know, and you reminded us how to diagnose DAH, um, which was you know specimens becoming bloodier on serial aliquots. Um, but we also talked about some techniques and management. So make sure you you take a listen to those again if needed. Um, but I want to come back to the patient and summarize um, so far. So we have a young man with prior IV drug use as well as hepatitis C who presented with lower extremity edema, dyspnea, and skin lesions, who is now being admitted with acute renal failure, large vessel inflammation, and pulmonary emboli, complicated by severe RV dysfunction and shock, and in respiratory failure with large volume hemoptysis concerning for DAH. So Brian, um, you know, we keep asking you, you know, what, what are the next steps in the case? And we keep being surprised, um, but wanted to know kind of what happened next and if you, ulti- you and the team ultimately found out a unifying diagnosis for this patient. Yeah, I, I think the two tests that came back in conjunction that were, that were most useful were the results of the renal biopsy and uh, a few of the serologic tests. Um, so I'll just note that his he did um, undergo the skin biopsy, which was um, not all that helpful in, in his case. It showed neutrophilic um, inflammation of the epidermis and dermis uh, associated with necrosis and intravascular fibrin thrombi. But the, from the talking to the dermatologists and the dermatopathologists, the, the differential diagnosis of that particular finding is rather broad. The renal biopsy um, was uh, a bit more specific, so it had a number of findings. The first was um, active and chronic crescentic glomerulonephritis with 80 to 85% of the uh, glomeruli showing uh, global glomerular sclerosis. But interestingly, in in conjunction uh, with that, he had evidence of linear um, IgG staining um, on immunofluorescence along the glomerular basement membrane. Given those findings in the hemoptysis, we were all very interested in what the anti-GBM antibody result would be. And, And interestingly in him, it was negative. In fact, really the only positive serologic finding out of out of all of the uh, vasculitis uh, serologic workup that that Asha mentioned that returned positive was his ANCA results. Um, so he uh, he was P ANCA positive with a ELISA uh, titer uh, to myeloperoxidase um, that was in the 30s, so uh, quite elevated, and his uh, ELISA for proteinase three antibodies was negative. Based on those findings, and of course, um, we had involved our, our nephrology colleagues and rheumatology colleagues at a, a fairly early time point, and um, uh, as well as the, our cardiology colleagues. And this was really a great case for uh, for interdisciplinary management and um, and discussion, and um, you know, given the complexity of, of all of the, uh, the the features of this case. 
And the final diagnosis that we um, that we settled on was that this patient had an overlap of GBM antibody negative anti-GBM disease with MPO positive ANCA associated vasculitis with large vessel involvement, which had resulted in him in severe pulmonary stenosis and right heart failure, acute on chronic crescentic glomerulonephritis and uh, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Wow, pretty amazing. I mean, we had a, a anti-GBM case before, but to have you know this overlap syndrome and, and anti-GBM negative, where you know you you know it's happening pathophysiologically based on the staining, but you don't have the antibodies, it's a pretty crazy case altogether. You you mentioned some of this before, Brian, but we think so much about small vessel vasculitides in pulmonary because that's the vessels we're often dealing with. But large vessel is you know pretty rare and something we see less. Um, uh, I think you started to review it earlier, and I think a great point for our listeners. Can you just tell us again, you know, what you think about with large vessel involvement in a vasculitis for our pulmonary patients? Yeah, it's quite unusual, and um, you, you, our, our patient um, had a number of, of relatively rare, uh, rare findings. Normally, in in, uh, in isolated um, large vessel uh, pulmonary vasculitis, you you think of diseases that you know can affect the the large vessels, including the pulmonary artery and, and aorta, of course, as well, uh, like Takayasu's arteritis in, in a younger patient, uh, giant cell arteritis in, in an older patient. IgG four disease is is certainly on the differential as well, and. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, if, if, um, if there were uh, evidence of pulmonary artery aneurysms, you could um, think of uh, Bichette's disease or Hughes-Stovin syndrome as well. But, but he actually had a, a rare uh, presentation of a rare condition. So pulmonary artery and large vessel pulmonary artery involvement in ankyovasculitis is rare, but has been described, and it, it can uh, both cause an aortitis and a pulmonary uh, arteritis, and, and cause both thickening of the vessel wall and uh, stenosis of uh, both the aorta and uh, and its large branches, and as well as the, the pulmonary artery. Thanks so much, Brian, for sharing that. That's some kind of an approach to start thinking about things for large vessel vasculitis, as you talked about. So I'm interested to know uh, what happened as far as further management with this patient and how did he ultimately do? He was treated with um, a few different modalities, again, in, in conjunction with, with our rheumatology and nephrology colleagues. He got uh, the pulse dose of steroids. Um, he uh, also received plasma exchange um, because of the concern for uh, GBM disease, cyclophosphamide, and uh, rituximab after his um, plasma uh, plasmapheresis. He uh, he was started on sildenafil for you know concern for uh, pulmonary hypertension when his um, when his shock had resolved, and you know there was given the the significant pulmonary artery stenosis um, in conjunction with our, our cardiology colleagues, some consideration of whether he would benefit from uh, stenting of his pulmonary artery, either in the acute phase or, or in the chronic phase. And this has been described in the literature. It's, it's uh, fairly uncommon to do, but the case series that um, have been described are mostly in either um, patients with Takayasu's arteritis or to a lesser extent, uh, giant cell arteritis. 
But the, the real preference uh, among the uh, interventional cardiologists who do this procedure are to do it when the inflammation has resolved, because in talking with them during uh, the acute inflammatory episodes, the tissue tends to be very friable, and there's a risk in doing this procedure of pulmonary artery rupture. And, and so they, they prefer to do it once the disease, um, the inflammation at least, has been uh, better controlled. So with, with that treatment, his MPO uh, antibody titer uh, declined. He uh, clinically improved. He did require um, a tracheostomy because you know his his improvement wasn't uh, um, uh, wasn't quite that rapid. But he was eventually uh, decannulated um, months later and, and is doing better overall. I think this was just another great episode and a case that we were so glad to highlight in our fellows case file series. And I think one of the reasons Perf and I wanted to do this was just to get diversity um, of cases that we may not see at our own institutions, as well as, you know, to be exposed to great educators such as you and Asha. So we really appreciate you both coming on for the show. You know, one of the things that Ferf and I like to do with each case is um, have one takeaway point. And Ferf, I'll start with you. What's one point um, from today you want listeners to remember? Yeah, I think I'm going to go with uh, with Asha's buckets for skin findings because I think it's a helpful, pragmatic way. Is that you're sort of deciding quickly? Do you think this is a true, true, unrelated? Is this actually driving the process? And that's a really acute scenario where you want to do something right away, or is this just a clue to the underlying process? In which case, you could go for biopsy or, or dermatology consultation to figure out the diagnosis. What about you, Monty? I think for mine, I feel like I'm going to put Asha on speed dial next time I need someone need help talking about whether or not I want to give contrast to someone um, with kidney failure, or if I'm going to start full dose steroids, I'm going to call you Asha and just have you walk have you walk it through with me. Um, and I, I mean, I think this was just a great case though overall, just of how important physical exam findings were and diagnostics earlier on the case. Um, we had we had several significant pertinent exam findings that Brian talked about, and including you know, his EKG as well as chest x-ray, um, I think that was just great to kind of start leading into our differential and kind of start thinking of big buckets before we, we went further into diagnostics. Brian, any takeaways for you after this case? Uh, I mean, there, there's so many, it's, it's hard to, to choose just one. Um, I think, you know, maybe I'll cheat and, and just give two. So, you know, the first would be, I, I learned a, a lot about uh, small and large vessel vasculitis. And and in particular, I thought it, you know, it was quite interesting that a significant percentage of the time patients with um, glomerular basement membrane disease will not have a, uh, a negative, um, will have a negative uh, antibody titer in, in their serum. And, you know, so particularly the patients who, um, you know, we think of who have diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and may not have uh, prominent renal involvement and, um, and we don't have the benefit uh, of a biopsy. It's not something that you can uh, that you can necessarily rule out with a negative uh, serum um, GBM antibody. And I think you know the the other takeaway from this case that uh, I would uh, put out there is that the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration and, and discussion in these these um, really complicated multi-system. Uh, diseases and um, getting your your consultants um, involved early and um, and often and uh, benefiting from from their wisdom and 
you know, that that's something um, I really like about uh, our specialty, um, whether it be in, on the consult service or in the medical ICU, is that, you know, we do, you get to take care of patients with these um, multi-system diseases and, and um, both um, learn a lot and, and get to collaborate with, um, with some of our, um, some of our uh, great colleagues in other specialties as well. Asha, something you'll take away? Yeah, you guys took a bunch of great ones. I love that last one, though, Brian. I think the interdisciplinary collaboration is is so it, what is a huge part of what makes our field fun. But I think the sort of real time involvement um, and the importance of kind of communication is is super important. I guess I'll just harken back to one small pearl that you um, mentioned, Dave, um, which was the EKG in this case. Um, you know, when you sort of mentioned that just that EKG alone, how much information you took from that, because I think sometimes we do tend to like skip ahead, right? We skip over the x-ray to the CT, we skip over the EKG to do the echo. Um, and so I thought that was just a really nice pearl to about how much in this case you could have gleaned from from the EKG. And, um, and so just like a, a reminder to myself, um, sometimes who can skip over that a little bit to um, to pay attention to that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did have one case once where the patient had a severe contrast allergy and was like doing very poorly and had EKG like that in a classic story and got TPA based on that alone, which is you know not not typical. So finally, we love doing these case files just to hear these great cases, but we also want to build a network of these great training programs and, and people to call on and experts and educators from across the country. So just hoping you guys can tell us a little bit more, Brian, maybe some special things or, or one special thing about the Harvard MGHBI fellowship that you're in right now. Yeah, no, I, again, um, you know, hard to narrow it down to, to one thing, but, you know, I think one thing just to, to echo my, my previous point, you know, one, one of the um, things that this case brings out in, in particular is just the, the very collaborative um, nature of, uh, of our fellowship program. And I, I think, you know, from my perspective, really the people make the program and, um, you know, both the faculty and, um, and uh, in, in the pulmonary and critical care division, as well as in other uh, other divisions are always, um, you know, willing to help out and uh, and collaborate in, in these really, you know, complicated cases. And and you know, when it comes to you know finding a, a research project later on in your fellowship as well. So you know, it's something that's really made uh, made my fellowship a really great experience. That's awesome to hear, Brian. And you know, so so great, and just love that collaborative environment that that you have there. And Asha, as we, you know, kind of are going into a new academic year, I'm sure and just know that how busy you are kind of with the fellowship program. Um, and so glad that you can join us today, but wanted to definitely get from you and hear from you anything that you want to share with our listeners um, about the fellowship program and, and why and how much you love it. Yeah, I love Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And I love what Brian said, because I do think the people make the program, both like the people kind of close to home who sort of teach and mentor the fellows and their co-fellows, but also the, the culture of the institutions. And I think we're really fortunate. We're also heading right from new fellows and into recruitment season. So this is great timing for me. I'm sure you have a lot of, you know, junior learners, fellowship applicant listeners. And I would say, you know, our program is um, in addition, you know, to a great place with a lot of great people, um, you get to see amazing clinical cases like this one that Brian shared. 
Um, and we're also a program, I think, that on the on the other side of things really intensively supports people in an individualized way to kind of discover what their academic passions are in this very large field of ours. And then really kind of, you know, intensively supports them to pursue mentorship and skills and all the things they need to kind of lay the foundation for an academic career. So it's been, you know, Brian's a great example of that among many others. And, and Dave's a great example of our really amazing um, you know, faculty who mentored them along the way. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for sharing the case. And uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks for our next episode. This case was produced, edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music is original music by Eric Rogers. We'll see you next time. <music>